Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. This week, I have a story that I think you are really going to enjoy. Um, We are back on the true crime beat this week, uh, and we are reaching back into the uh, early part of the 20th century. Uh, Well, I I suppose the the middle of the 20th century. The early smoky flames of World War II beginning to burn as Jocelyn Hay, the 22nd Earl of Errol, met his end. Uh, Hay is a British peer. And his name is Jocelyn. J-O-S-S-L-Y-N. Jocelyn. Interesting. Uh, Jocelyn Hay, uh, but he was known as the Earl Errol at the time uh, of his murder. The Earl Errol. Yeah, well, he he was a Scottish lord, so it'd be like, the Earl. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, At the time of his murder in Kenya on January 24th of 1941. And it is the circumstances surrounding that murder for which Jocelyn Hay is most known. But growing up in the tumultuous times that he did, his life and his death sit at kind of a fascinating nexus of a bunch of interesting stuff. Oh yeah, 1941? You've, well, you yes, you've got <laughs> World War II brewing, of course, uh, dying colonialism across the globe, surging fascism also across the globe, mm-hmm. and uh, in this story, a healthy dose of free love, and all of the salacious trappings that uh, make, I don't know, a high society gossip story. Sure. So, but let's start at the beginning. Jocelyn Hay was born May 11th, 1901. And he was the eldest son, the heir, of diplomat Victor Hay and his wife, Lucy. Uh, Lucy was the daughter of some baronet. Okay. Was Victor an earl at this point? Yeah. Victor was an earl. The Hayes have been the earls of Errol since the title was first granted to William Hay by James II of Scotland all the way back in 1452. Wow. Yeah. Uh, William Hay had been the Lord High Constable of Scotland which is a title that his descendants um, still bear. Although it doesn't hold any actual duties or political weight anymore. It's just... Well, earldoms... Uh, we'll get... It's, it's, it's just a title at this point. I mean, there are responsibilities, but a lot of them are keeping up the earldom. Yes, exactly. It, <laughs> and um, many of these things, some of them come with estates, family seats, that kind of thing. you have to keep thing. them up. Exactly. And... Um, most of them used to have incomes or, uh, you know, incomes of some kind. You know, originally, I would imagine you had some peasants or something. And, right. the, and then later on, the state would just give you a little money. That was all completely gone by Jocelyn Hayes' time. And he, like other members of his family, were expected to take on uh, a profession like normal people to help uh, keep up. Well, not the family estate. We'll get into it. But that had already been sold by this point. Mm. Um, but to keep up their own appearances yeah um so just like any normal 19 year old you know you 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 get done with your schooling and you have to get out there and find a job the old-fashioned way so hey like any growing boy was appointed honorary attache to berlin under his father in (laughs) 1920 his dad was the substitute ambassador kind of at the time honorary attache yes yeah, so. <laughs> so just pointless mick pointless yes yeah, so you get to hang out and in smoke-filled rooms with a bunch of important um, yeah. europeans you're not you're not doing anything no um but he seemed to take to it at an least... attache case would be more useful <laughs> uh in jocelyn hayes case i bet that's true mm. uh, <laughs> but he seemed to take a liking to the job, or at least enough so that he continued on there until 1922, even after Yeah, his... I'd love that job, too. Right, but his dad left, so it's not like he was just hanging out with dad. He presumably had some real um, responsibility. Yeah, he probably point. made some connections there. Yep, and uh, so expecting to kind of continue on in this foreign service life, he took and passed the foreign office exams, and everyone kind of expected that Jocelyn Hay, uh, at this point, by the way, styled Lord Kilnarok. Okay, Kilnarok. Kilnarok. That oh. that is the uh, the son of the the Earl of Errol is Lord Kilnarok. It's also a 
an ancient Norwegian uh, apocalypse fable. Are you thinking of Ragnarok? I am, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, after Kilnarok, of course, the world will begin anew Mm -hmm. um, because the giant snake will throw up all the um, Norn stones. I don't know. (laughs) So as I said, everyone expected Jocelyn Hay to follow the family trade and go into diplomacy. Um, become, become an ambassador. Become an ambassador of some kind. Uh, uh, maybe a larger attache case, a, a whole suitcase. Who knows? Mm, one of those rolly guys. Yeah, but um, I think we all gravitate towards certain of the seven deadly sins, Carrie. Mm. Hayes' chief sins seem to have been lust and sloth. And those were both calling right around the time that he passed those foreign office exams. Ooh, what do you think your sin is? What would Kevin Spacey kill you for? Well, it would be it would be sloth or gluttony or lust, I guess. It'd be one of those. Mm. Not really an angry guy. No. But I got those. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't know if your lust is sinful, unless there's stuff that I don't know about. No. Yeah. But I think we're on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> Sloth and gluttony. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Our, would it be better if our sins were opposite? I don't know. I like to think they complement each other. Well, yeah, in that we, we sit on the couch and <laughs> eat our pizza together. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, which we did just before recording this episode. Yeah. Sloth and gluttony. Listen, recording night means pizza night. I don't make the rules. And neither of us has had much chance to be slothful recently. Anyway. I'm so tired. <laughs> Instead of getting into that hard-working diplomat lifestyle, uh, Jocelyn Hay fell for rich socialite Lady Edina Sackville. Okay. Now, Sackville was the daughter of the Earl de Loire. And uh, instead of, you know, doing whatever it is diplomats do, uh, he started spending all of his time wooing this um, older married woman. She was eight years his senior. And she was married. And she currently had a husband, yes, one Captain Charles Gordon. A captain? Oh, the... this is a romance novel. And... Earl versus Captain? And to add to the scandal, Captain Gordon was Adina's second husband. <gasps> what happened in the first one? Divorce. <gasps> yes. Not a, not a... Because she had been having an affair with Captain Gordon. <gasps> well, if... If you meet and your partner is cheating on their partner to be with you, it's going to happen to you. This is a rule that we can apply several times in this same story, Carrie. I'm sure of it. Um, So in any case, by 1923, Adina had divorced Captain Gordon. Mm -hmm. And she and Jocelyn, who I remember was Lord Kilnarok at this point, uh, married on September 2nd of 1923. Third time's a charm. Now, Lord Kilnarok has just married a twice-divorced woman, eight years his senior, who he met and clearly started dating while she was still uh, with her husband. And this is the 1920s, so I'm trying to figure out when the whole uh, abdication crisis happened. I feel like that's early 30s. I think so. But anyway, so the abdication crisis, to to remind, is... um, Edward, uh, who was going to become the next king after George, uh, abdicated the throne because he wanted to marry an American divorcee named Wallace Simpson. And um, this was a big deal. No one had abdicated in forever. And that's the only reason that the next King George, who's uh, Queen Elizabeth's father, was made king. He was never supposed to be king. He was the spare. It's like Prince Harry becoming king. Right. And Edward became the Duke of Windsor. But uh, that wouldn't be until 1937, a couple of years before our story ends here. Right. So, um, so, I mean, even for the king, like he was king, but he had to abdicate. So he couldn't even make it work for himself to marry a divorcee so now this other noble has done that and and divorce also is really frowned upon yeah so even in even in the church of england and that was technically the point of the church of england right let's just say things are getting saucy um yeah so saucy that 
because remember he had also dropped a promising career in the in the state service to um, gallivant around so this with was this like his, divorcee. Yeah, his full time job is is because she's got money, right? So if he lands it with this lady, he's not going to have to work anymore. Mm-hmm. And so he's just full time just macking on this married woman. Uh, and now they're married. It's good work if you can get it. So um, things were getting pretty hot in British society, and not in a good way. And so the two spent some of Adina's fortune picking up and moving to Kenya. Now, why Kenya? Uh, Kenya, Caroline, was a very fashionable place for wealthy British people to move to at the time. Uh, and in fact, some called it one of, Br- one of the British Empire's crown jewels. Now, I know that Harry and even William have a very close connection with Africa. I'm pretty sure that's where Harry proposed to Meghan. <laughs> Listen, guys, this is also kind of my job, so it's weird. But anyway, so like there's still that real connection there between the monarchy and these African countries that I guess they they had colonized initially yeah. and... Do they have any of them now? No. I don't think, I didn't think so. Yeah. No, so, but you know, they're still very closely linked, kind of like Jamaica as well. Or even maybe a closer um, paradigm might be India. Yeah. Like there still are kind of those. Um, those kind of shared connections and. But also cuisines. maybe some tension like, hey, you, yeah. we, we didn't love the whole time. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> we were ruled by you guys. Um, so. The, but, you know, even even now, it's still seen as this kind of exotic vacation spot in a way where it's like, well, we're, we're not just doing the islands. We're going to Africa. You know, it's very... We're going on safari. It's very colonial, for sure. Yes. Uh, the English first got their toehold in the area that is modern-day Kenya with the arrival of the Imperial British East Africa Company in 1888. I feel like... No, they weren't coming in to buy people and sell them. That's what the no? Portuguese were doing. Okay, listen, I'm not de- I'm not descended from those. As European powers were wont to do at the time, though, they told the locals, okay, we're in charge now, and they slapped down a railroad, and they said, this whole area is now the British East Africa protectorate. And did they actually protector it? No, they mostly took, you know, stripped out what natural yeah. resources there were, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in 1920, the protectorate turned into a colony, uh, and it was called Kenya after the highest peak in the country. And um, the interior highlands very quickly began being settled by uh, wealthy, being settled by white British people. And later, some other European white people, Dutch people and stuff. Basically, uh, because they saw like the land as being up for the taking. Super arable, farmable land with locals <laughs> who didn't have to pay very much to work. And why not just give it to the locals and live there? And so they would grow coffee and tea, and many of them would get very, very wealthy doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, exporting all that stuff out of the country and uh, exporting most of the wealth out of the country as well. Uh, The Danish memoir Out of Africa, later uh, a Robert Redford Meryl Streep film in Mm -hmm. the 80s, um, that was published in 1937 and is about exactly this. Hmm. Like the interior uh, Kenya, white people going there to farm and and live away from, you know, whatever civilized European society as they saw it. Of course. Um, of course, they were also largely pushing out the native Kikuyu who already lived in those highlands. Well, that's how colonialism works. But who didn't have any British legal claims to the area, of course. They just lived there. And so by the 1920s, there were thousands of British settlers there. Um, by the 1950s, at, at its peak, there would be tens of thousands of uh, British and, and other European settlers in the Kenyan highlands. Are there still a lot? Uh, not Nearly as, yes, there are still white populations there and Indian, uh, a pretty big Indian population there too, um, because of the workers the whites brought in. Mm. Um, yeah, so those populations are still there. Mm. But back then, all of the white people were in charge. Yeah. Um, the UK would end up ceding control, by the way, in 63, but that's after our, our timeline here. So this is uh, kind of the peak of uh, British imperial control of Kenya. 
And when Lord and Lady Kilnarok moved there in 1924, they would settle in a bungalow at the foot of the Aberdare Mountains, right in those highlands we were just talking about. And Jocelyn Hay named this new bungalow Slains. I guess with it, with the, it would probably Slains, right? <laughs> After the family seat of Slains Castle, which Jocelyn's grandfather had sold eight years before in some dire financial straits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Slens was a fair, the new Slens was a fairly modest looking bungalow, but inside it was um, anything but modest with mirrored ceilings and a, a green marble bathroom with wood fired hot water being piped through at uh, all hours of the day. Wow. Um, they spent their money where they, where they enjoyed it. You know, that's fair enough. I think having hot water baths, um, that's definitely worth a little extra quiche. It's pretty key. It's pretty key and it's pretty quiche. (laughs) Um, Now, Carrie, the valley near the Aberdare Mountains had earned the name Happy Valley Hmm. by the expatriates who lived there. Better than Death Valley. Um, Because this was, uh, as we've mentioned, the playground of rich British expatriates who were looking to escape Britain's high taxes and also its buttoned-up social mores. Mm, so they're a little sussy. That's right. Um, oh, I should acknowledge our sources. The, the, the main source anyone would use to... <laughs> is Penthouse Magazine issue. <laughs> <laughs> the, main, the main source anyone would use on this is uh, James Fox's White Mischief. That's kind of the accepted oh. version. Uh, an investigative book written in the early 80s. White Mischief, just, just thousands of pages long. Oh, to a, to uh, catalog for, all of it? For the history of white mischief, Yeah, yes. no, this is just a specific piece of white mischief. Okay. And, uh, and, and a whole book's about it, so that should tell you all you need to know about white mischief. And that's an investigative piece. We'll talk about the conclusions he comes to later on. Um, but that title is used for a fictional, fictionalized, dramatized adaptation from 1987 starring mm. Charles Dance as Jocelyn Hay himself. So if you want to see... Old Tywin Lannister getting down and dirty. Oh, he's so good in everything. He's he, honestly he's great in this. He's great in um The Crown. He plays Charles's uncle, um, the guy who got blown up by the IRA. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Mountbatten. He's great in that. He's great in everything. This is like a slow, smoky drama where. You know, he, he at one point he tells a guy's wife, he's, I'm going to sleep with your wife tonight. And he yeah. just looks him in the eyes. The best thing about Tywin Lannister is just seeing him in smoky rooms where he's just being a bitch to everyone. Right. So so it's kind of that. But then there's there's murder, as we will find out. Also Game of Thronesy. So besides Fox's book, we're also using some rumors I picked up from Time Magazine. (laughs) and blind items. And from The Rake. And it is uh, Nick Scott writing in The Rake, who uh, I'll just just quote from here. What's Uh, The Rake? It's a magazine, an online publication. Like current one? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, But this is from an article about Happy Valley, about the Happy Valley set, as they're called, um, and about their... um, rebellion against those social mores Mm. but it was perhaps britain's now long defunct but then culturally prevalent sexual inhibition that they abandoned with the most gusto Mm. wild orgies and wife swapping were virtually a prerequisite for any who wished to be embraced in the wanjohi valley social scene which had the mutaiga country club as its focal point evenings that began with gazelle chops and champers Soundtracked by the tinny sounds of music hall ditties from a wind-up gramophone would degenerate into levels of substance-addled debauchery that made Gomorrah seem like the priggish Suffolk parish of Steeple Bumpstead. One post-dinner parlor game involved male attendees lining up behind a sheet, then poking (laughs) their aroused appendages through holes in it so that the ladies present could cast their votes on their favorite. Uh, a common joke at the time, both in Kenya and in England, was, are you married or do you live in Kenya? <laughs> I don't know if displaying your manhood in such a fashion is the most flattering display. Well, it's just, you're just judging the, you know, the... The, the, the me- circumference? No, just judging the member... Sure. In absence of any any other part. Mm, you need the context, I think. I think context is important. I think context I is you. key. Um, also, 
<laughs> do you move to this place knowing that this is the vibe, right? Like, like fully, this is the vibe. Maybe you like, do you move there and you're thinking, oh, they're kind of groovy, but not know that it's orgies every night. I think it's that. I think it's like, well, you know. And then you just kind of get sucked into it. You know, I hear that some some men there are fond of sleeping with other men's wives. And then you get there and it's like, oh, no, they all do that all of the time. Oh, okay. Uh, that would be a big surprise. It would be a big surprise to move into. Not the best. Not the best. Um, for Jocelyn Hay, though, it was a welcome surprise if it was. And he quickly became a fixture among the Happy Valley set along with his... And all, all the Happy Valley women. <laughs> along with his wife. And um, by some reports, he would eventually sort of become the de facto leader of this social group. All right. Uh, Idina herself was rumored to greet guests for their spouse-swapping parties from her green marble bathtub and then rise in front of them and dress for the party while they were all in the room. That's kind of a baller move. I'm not going to lie. To quote that article again, Idina was only happy if all her guests had swapped partners, wives, or husbands by nightfall. Wow. Meanwhile, uh, it was not a cheap lifestyle. Certainly. And so Hay quickly started to run up debts from all of the partying, gambling, cocaine, opium, and morphine that were prerequisites for these affairs. Wow. Imagine that hangover. Oh, awful. (laughs) Awful. Uh, The only thing, you know, the worst part is the only cure for a morphine hangover is more morphine. In 1928, Hay's father died, which meant Jocelyn was now the 20, which meant Jocelyn was now the 22nd Earl of Errol. And so that's very exciting. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like he's going to get much money out of it. If anything, he's going to have more financial responsibility. Well, there's no family seat to keep up and there's no family like duties to attend to. So it's really just a title he can walk around with. He doesn't even have to go home and he doesn't. He spent two more years <laughs> partying exactly like he had been mm. in Kenya with his wife and, and all of their boyfriends and girlfriends. All right. Must have been hell of a time. It was, but it wasn't all happy. And oh, I'm sure. But that's, I think that's probably part of the draw for these people. Uh, I mean, even in aristocracy on the mainland, I think the drama is part of it. It keeps things interesting because otherwise your lives are so miserably boring so much of the time. When you're not at events and red carpets, you're just sitting there at your family seat. Yeah. Just waiting for the next thing to happen. You'd have no job. I mean, it's it's dreadfully boring. So what spices that up? Well, getting pissed at your husband for sleeping with so-and-so, but you slept with so-and-so, but it's a whole drama, you know? Well, interestingly, Carrie, Adina and Jocelyn divorced in 1930, but it wasn't because of all the affairs they had both been having openly um, mm-hmm. the whole time. It was rather because Jocelyn had been bilking his wife financially, basically from the beginning. And that's beyond the pale. Yeah. And so when she found out that he had been stealing from her, like from the jump, (laughs) she was out. That's fair enough. Um, It's fair enough. And it seemed to only be a bump in the road for Jocelyn Hay, uh, because a month or so later, he married another rich divorcee, Mm. Edith Maud Molly Ramsey Hill, Mm. uh, who was already his mistress. Okay. (laughs) So that's convenient, right? You just move her right up into the number one spot. And she had a ton of money. I mean, he had already almost spent all of Adina's money, right? So this is really an upgrade. And he and Molly moved into a farm called Osarian, just right across the valley. And Molly fit right in right away with the hedonistic lifestyle of Happy Valley. They fit into her. And all of the, yes, and she fit in many of the locals, as did, <laughs> as did Mr. Hay. Okay, well, you know what? The thing seems to be they have open relationships. That's perfectly fine if they're honest about that and upfront with their partners. But, you know, it's really the financial stuff, the, the devious backstabby stuff that is the problem so i understand that um but how about this for making out uh, out of his divorce his he and his new wife's home osarian mm. was a crenellated domed manor with an interior courtyard uh fountains all over the place 
uh, and it was equipped with a squash court, a swimming pool, and polo grounds. Wow. That's a big, that's a big piece of Kenya. That's a big piece of Kenya. Um, yeah, so they were fitting right in, and they were, this is around the time that he's really becoming the leader. I mean, all of the parties, when they move from the Mutaiga Country Club, and they're like, we have to go somewhere to have sex, they're going to this Osarian farm uh, under the domed, you know, uh, So people uh, are just also, like, showing up? to fuck there well i don't know about that but i think they're having parties there a lot oh okay (laughs) it's sort of hq that's the after party locale exactly i see so they start at the country club and uh and molly in particular jocelyn hay loved a party um but molly in particular was never not down to party so um yeah there were a lot of parties Mm mm-hmm I mentioned Hay's life uh, touched on a, a number of interesting areas. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting area. Uh, in 1934, while he was visiting England, uh, Lord Errol, I don't know that much about his political life before this, but in 1934, he joined the British Union of Fascists, hmm. which was the British Fascist Party started in 1932 by Oswald Mosley. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mosley had been a conservative MP. Um, but then he didn't like uh, the conservatives, he said, weren't doing anything about unemployment. So then he became a labor MP. But he said they weren't doing anything about unemployment. So then he became an independent labor MP. Um, and then he visited Benito Mussolini in Italy in like 1932. Yeah, in 1932. And then he was all about fascism from that point on. Well, that Mussolini was a persuasive guy, I guess. That to some Italians, I guess. It's a pretty silly looking guy, though. Yeah. Uh, at one point, the BUF would claim 50,000 members across England. So this wasn't like a minor thing. No, British fascism was a problem. And if Edward hadn't, David, hadn't advocate, abdicated, um, he could have easily given up to Hitler because they were buds. And uh, that would be a completely different England, a completely different way of the war, of history, of everything. Mm-hmm. So thank you to Wallace Simpson yeah. for existing. <laughs> uh, to give you an idea of just how mainstream this was, the Daily Mail uh, was a major cheerleader of the British uh, Union of Fascists. Uh, yeah. In 1934, in July of 1934, the Daily Mail ran a headline, Hurrah for the Black Shirts, with a picture of all of the uh, guys in the black uh, uh, fascist uniforms marching down the street doing their salutes. It's not good. The party would eventually um, be prescribed by the British government in 1939 and disbanded in 1940 for whatever. Yeah, what happened in 1939 that really... Yeah, that would be the start of a set things off. start of a war, a little war called World War II, uh. and afraid that this might become sort of a fifth column of Nazi support within the country. Um, and it might have been if it wasn't King George in charge. The government cracked down, and before you ask, yes, of course they were into the violent anti-Semitism part of the whole European fascism package. Yep. Yep. Um. Anyhow. Back in Kenya, Hay's family name and his local social connections and maybe some of his new political connections were helping him to make inroads in East African society. And he was elected to the Legislative Council in 1939, so sort of the local Senate or whatever. And on the outbreak of World War II, he would join the Kenya Armored Regiment and uh, he would eventually be appointed Military Secretary for East Africa. So for the whole... You know, Military Secretary, isn't that a Paul McCartney song? Uh, yeah, yes, I th- yeah, yeah, uh, from from the eighties. Not his best time, but uh, <laughs> but but still, still a, a jaunty little hit. <laughs> so here we are. World War Two has broken out. And Jocelyn Hay, um, you know, he's not on the front lines or anything, but he has an important role to play, at least in terms of the local Kenyan government. And um, he also obviously has a ton of parties to go to. Um, and he was also dealing with some further tragedy in, his, tragedy in his life, because in October of 1939, Lady Errol, the latest Lady Errol, had died. Oh, what happened? Well, as I said, she took a little too well to the Happy Valley lifestyle 
and she died of an alcohol and morphine overdose. Oh, God. October 1939 at age 45. Oof. So there were a lot of... It was not hard to access drugs at this time. It would have been a really, really hard place to be dealing with an addiction uh, problem. Yeah. Not that it sounds like she necessarily was trying to deal with it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, while he was almost never without female company, Jocelyn Hay was probably feeling alone in 1940 when, at the Motaiga Country Club, he met Lady Diana Broughton. Yeah, he, uh, he introduced himself to her, and she said, My name's Lady, and he said, Say no more. That tells me enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking for one of those. Yes. Um, I, I read somewhere... I think this is unkind because she's she's pretty, but I read somewhere uh, what she lacked in natural beauty, she made up for in boldness and fashion or something like that. So they're so bitchy back then. Like people think we're bitchy, but they were bitchy too. Um, so this is a woman who he was immediately smitten with, and who would, directly or indirectly, we'll discuss later, lead to his demise. Ooh, and it is with the introduction of Lady Diana Broughton and her husband. John Delves, oh. <laughs> of course. Uh-oh. Oh, that was a surprise? I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. And her, I don't know what I was expecting. And her husband, Sir Henry John Delves Jock Broughton. Uh-oh. Jock Broughton? Yeah, Baron Jock Broughton. Baron Broughton? Oh, my God. And we will introduce those two and the beginning of a very sticky love affair. Not that way, Carrie. Stop looking at me like that. Okay. After the break. Oh, boy. Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters, it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had, I think, Carrie, given a pretty good introduction to the Happy Valley scene in Kenya in the uh, 1930s, 20s and 30s. Oh, yes. And to Jocelyn Hay, the uh, soon-to-be murder victim who is the subject of our story. And when we went to break, we had just introduced, or were about to introduce, Lady Diana Broughton and her husband, Sir Henry John Jock Delves Broughton, mm-hmm. baronet, um, who would be the, who would both contribute uh, to, well, to the end of our podcast. Let's not spoil everything. I can't give well, you the Well, the episode, surely. I can't. <laughs> no, <laughs> this after is the this, end of done. the show. We're done. <laughs> uh, Carrie, Jock Delves Broughton was born in Cheshire in 1883. And like a lot of aristocratic young men who had to earn their way in the world, now the baronets aren't paid any money just for being around, mm-hmm. he attended the Royal Military College. He attended the Royal Military College and was commissioned to a cushy officer's post in the Irish Guard. Mm. At least it was a cushy post until the outbreak of World War One, uh. when officers and enlisted men alike were being sent off to the French front to uh, be gunned down by machine gun fire. Mm. And so it was probably a lucky turn for Jock Broughton that, wouldn't you know it, he took ill and he didn't have to go. So some other... Did he take ill or did he take ill? All I can say is that a family doctor testified that he had had an infection that left him with night blindness (laughs) and he wasn't fit for (laughs) service. Okay. But night blindness would make it hard to... Sure. You know. It's uh, very specific. 
to have no day blindness, but only night blindness. It, it, there's a whiff of bone spurs there, Carrie. I, I, I know what you're saying. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Uh-huh. Um, however, Broughton did have to sell off most of his family property during the 1930s to furnish gambling debts he had incurred. So you could say he did experience his own private psalm in that way. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, he owned part of a racetrack for a while. He part w- of which part? Well, he was like just the first turn. He went in with some other slightly shady businessman on mm-hmm. a on a racetrack ownership. Um, he was in, suspected of insurance fraud when his wife had uh, some paintings and some pearls stolen. Okay. So that's Jock. And he w- sounds like a jock. That was his first wife, by the way. She had the pearls. Mm. His second wife would be Diana Caldwell, who was born in Hove, East Sussex in 1913, making her 30 years jocks junior. Um, upon her debut, as I said, Diana Caldwell made up for in, they say, in, you know, kind of grace and boldness, what she lacked in uh, natural beauty. Mm-hmm. Not like she was some hideous chud or something, you mm-hmm. know. Um but she fit right into high society and started racking up marriage proposals as she flitted through society balls, weddings, uh, races, and hunts throughout her teenage years with a series of wealthy suitors. Hmm. In 1937, she met the dashing pianist and aviator Vernon Motion. Motion? Vernon Motion. A pianist and aviator Vernon Motion. I mean, who doesn't want to marry that guy? And she believed him to be incredibly wealthy. Mm-hmm. And at the time she was pregnant, although not with Vernon's baby, of course. And so the two got married a few days after she met him. But then it turned out that he actually thought she was really wealthy. Oh. And so then they got divorced a few weeks after that. Okay. So that was Diana's first marriage. Um, and then in 1938, she was staying with a friend named Betty Loftus. What happened to the baby? The baby's never mentioned again, so I don't think that child was born, which also would have been quite a scandal at the time. Sure. In 38, Diana was staying with a friend named Betty Loftus, who arranged a few chance meetings with an older rich fella she knew, Jock Mm -hmm. Broughton, while he was staying in Cheshire. Mm -hmm. And by 1939, Broughton had begun divorce proceedings against his wife, she of the pearls and the paintings. Mm Mm-hmm. And immediately after the divorce was finalized, Jock and Diana were married in November of 1940, and they moved to Nairobi. And that's the end. It's just romantic. And Diana was going to fit right in with the party lifestyle. Oh, I can sense that. Of British Kenya. Um, In fact, you asked Carrie if people know kind of what they're getting into when they're headed over there. If Broughton didn't know when he married Diana what he was in for... He probably knew when she had an affair with a fellow passenger on the way to Kenya. Stop. She couldn't even get there before she was banging around. Nope. And she made him put a clause in their prenuptial agreement that if she were to fall in love with a younger man, she could leave him and he would give her an allowance for the next seven years. Yeah, but that might lead to having to define love in a court of law. (laughs) It could also lead to, I don't know, a, a murder. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> um, Ooh. Needless to say, it was November of 1940 when, when, they, when they were married and moved to Kenya. And needless to say, because... Well, needless to say, because you said that Jocelyn dies in 41, so... In January of 41. Ooh, okay. So, basically, instantly, Jocelyn Hay and Diana Broughton began a heated... And pretty public affair. I mean, that's how things were in British Kenya at the time, right? You just, yeah, they, you just they bumped it. into each other at the baggage claim um, when she was getting off the plane. And nothing was private in sure. this social scene. It was just like, yeah, I'm screwing her, I'm screwing her, I'm screwing her, I'm definitely screwing her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Broughton apparently put on a brave face about all this, but would complain to friends privately about all the time that his young wife was spending with this other man. Yeah, you don't want to tell anyone that your wife is cucking you with a guy named Jocelyn. No, certainly not. I mean, even if your name is Jock. Maybe especially if your name is Jock. Oh, I think especially, Sean. And it's believed 
this part of the story is only, I mean, you know, technically it's private between Diana and Jock, between Diana and Sir Jock. And, uh, but it seems like Diana told Jock that she was in love with Lord Errol. How long after they started hanging out? Um, this would be in late January. Mid when, to, when did she arrive? Uh, November. Mid, oh. mid-November. <laughs> okay. Well, it's cuffing season. Yeah, so it's like been a month, maybe a month and a half mm-hmm. when she tells her husband, listen, I am madly in love with this other man. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to cash in that prenup clause and get that seven years of allowance from you while, uh, while uh, Lord Jocelyn and I party together in, in the Kenya sun. But why not just keep on keeping on? Well, because she. Why did she have to get divorced? I think Jock was cramping her style because he would complain when she would be out late with the guy she liked hanging around with. Okay. Um, So on January 23rd, here's what we do know. On January 23rd of 1941, Lord Errol and Lord and Lady Broughton and June Carberry, another member of the Matiga Club, all had dinner at the club together. Well, you needed an even number of people, so, you know. Well. So everybody has somebody to leave with. Mm -hmm. And uh, at this dinner, apparently, Jock gave his blessing. To Diana and Jocelyn's union. And then he and June, at the end of dinner, left and left Lord Errol and Lady Broughton alone for a night of dancing and whatever they would get up to later. Mm. But he said... But do me this one favor, you know. I'm you. You can you can have my wife. You two are in love with each other. Take I get my it. wife, please. Take my wife, please. But please, tonight, Lord Errol, she's still my wife. Have her home by three a.m. Reasonable. Reasonable enough. And it was early the next morning, January twenty fourth of nineteen forty one, that Jocelyn Hay was found dead. Hmm. He was crammed under the wheel of his Buick sort of kneeling in the, like, wheel well at a crossroads with a bullet in his temple. Oh, okay. The rainy season had washed away any footprints or tire marks that might have left any clues to where the killer went. And the only traces the police were able to find were strange white scuff marks in the backseat of the car, like from a nice pair of shoes. Hmm. Now, of course, Carrie, it wasn't long before suspicion fell on Sir Jock. Sure. Um, 15-year-old Juanita Carberry, the daughter of June Carberry, who Jock had spent the night with, told police she visited Sir Jock's compound in the morning and found a crying Diana who was arguing loudly with her husband next to a bonfire that Juanita said looked like it was fueled by men's clothing and shoes. Okay. Uh, Shortly after she made that announcement to police, Sir Jock was arrested and a trial was started on March 26th. Okay. Now, I'm not saying there's any irregularities here, Carrie. No? But the jury foreman on this trial was Sir Jock's barber. Okay. It's a small community, you know? Sure. But Uh, was he everyone's barber? No, I don't think so. Was he also Jocelyn's barber? Uh, Well, he didn't seem to have any sympathy for him, I'll tell you that much. Okay. Diana stood by her husband's story throughout the trial. Um, She had come home at 2.30. They had gone to bed, and that was that. They were both very upset when they heard Jocelyn was dead. Did she have any explanation for what Juanita said? Oh, they were, I mean, they were arguing, and they had a bonfire. Uh, (laughs) You know, as you do, at 6 a.m. in Kenya. Jock's explanation for the bonfire was he was upset that his friend had died, and he thought a bonfire would calm him down. You know, an early morning bonfire to, to cool your nerves. But had he even heard the official word? He yet? said he had. Okay. Now the bullet in Hayes... bonfire. The bullet in Lord Errol's head had five grooves in it. And the revolver that Jock at least owned up to owning had six grooves in the barrel. So he was like, see, I have this gun. He's waving it around. I, I couldn't have done it with this. This, t- this gun is too groovy. And when he was asked if he owned any other guns, he said, oh, I have two other revolvers, but they were stolen recently. Okay. 
And uh, everybody sort of bought that, and he was acquitted on July 1st, 1941. Well, there's no other proof. Um, yeah, exactly. The, the evidence was a Did little bit... Did they find the other guns? No, those no- other so, guns yeah. never showed up. Yeah. And uh, the defense also claimed that Broughton's pre-war illness... I mean, this guy couldn't even serve in World War One because he's night blind. For God's sake, the man's night blind. They said he, he his doctor... He we wouldn't a, be able to shoot because he couldn't see him. We have a doctor's note right here. He has night blindness in a weak right hand. And so he couldn't have committed this crime. I mean, yeah, you get acquitted, but at what cost? His hand's too weak to hold that big old gun. At what cost indeed, Carrie? By the time the trial was over, Diana had already taken up with a new lover. One of course. Gilbert, it was the judge, probably. Well, it was Gilbert Colville, the richest landowner in Kenya, who had been a daily spectator at the trial. Well, he didn't have anything else to do. And after Ugh, that... How tawdry, Sean. After that old... Jock Broughton, who probably never fit in with these people very well to begin with, was completely ostracized from the Happy Valley community, and he just sort of sadly alone returned to England in December 1942, officially to recover from a back injury after falling off a horse. Um, But a few days after getting home, he was found dying of a morphine overdose in a Liverpool hotel. Woof. Uh, For what it's worth, a month after that overdose, Diana married Colville, her lover from the trial. I'm surprised it took her a month. Pretty groovy chick. She would uh, then divorce that guy in 1954 and live in a thruple with her next husband, the Baron Tom Delamere and Lady Patricia Fairweather, another expatriate British noble. Was she also banging Patricia? Yeah, both. Throughout the 60s and 70s. All right. Talk about groovy. And Colville, remember her... Elder thruple? Come on. And and her now ex, Colville, remember, was the richest landowner in all of Kenya. He still liked her so much, they stayed friends, that he left her all of his property when he died, and she became the most powerful European woman in Africa. She seems like a fascinating person, to say the least. She was called the White Queen of Africa. Oh, well, I don't know if I like that, but... Well, you know, it was a different time. It was a time, (laughs) Carrie. So, let's talk suspects. I think we know where we're going to land here, but let's just get it all out there. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Because Kenya was an important British military base for successful com- campaigns against Italian Somalia and Ethiopia. And as of 1940, Jocelyn Hay was the military secretary for East Africa. I mean, that, we're talking small potatoes in the scheme of things, though. But Carrie, this is like a, almost a gangland-style assassination, a bullet behind the ear. Yeah, but if you're trying to make a point, you don't leave it mysterious if you want to make a point of an assassination a military assassination you want them to know who did it in a way so you don't believe that this was a political assassination a secretive military secretary assassination for no reason and no one took the credit no i don't think so okay well it's sometimes been suggested nazis could have killed him or italian fascists sure it has though been more often suggested that mi6 killed jocelyn hay due to his fascist leanings seeing him he's not even in the country right but they could have seen him as a weak link since it was an important military base for the british presence in africa they could have seen him as a weak link in fighting italian fascism i don't know i don't know it seems tenuous that's very fair now let's go to the let's go to the two popular suspects here as you know, history loves a femme fatale, Carrie. And Diana Broughton very much does cut the femme fatale figure with her endless string of kind of um, smitten simp husbands that she leaves <laughs> broken in her wake. So the theory here goes that Hay wanted to break things off, or maybe Diana wanted to leave her husband and move things to the next level, and he wanted to keep it casual. You can't tie Jocelyn Hay down. And his jilted lover killed him before making her cuckold husband take the fall for it. No. Right. And in this version... Because if she had her prenup, if things were going to go really as they were supposed to go, Jock was going to pay her to marry Jocelyn. And Jocelyn, we know, above all things, even more than that dad ass, <laughs> he loves that cash. Uh, he might love that ass even more, but uh, it's close. 
Uh, yeah, she, he wouldn't have left right on the precipice of getting literally a cuck pension. Okay. <laughs> That's literally, I couldn't imagine a better job for him as being paid to steal this man's wife. Okay. He wouldn't have left. She, why would she have? Um, why was, I, I see no motive for, him to have wanted to leave or her to have wanted to break things off. I think it was Jack. So, yeah, but uh, do you get why he, are you surprised he was let off here? I am because it's, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know as much how British. It was pretty sensationalized back home. Law works compared to ours. And I also don't know how it works when it comes to like, expats and ambassador types and I, things like that i read in the oofs and goofs section on imdb for the uh for the white mischief movie uh-huh. that uh since it's an american director the in the film uh there's people yelling like objection oh, sustained right. in the well because i was thinking it is beyond a reasonable doubt i don't know if that's what it is there too i think the standards are similar it's a similar if it's a similar standard then there's a reasonable doubt i mean you have no murder or weapon you have no evidence physically um you have diane crying and there being a bonfire so there's plenty of circumstantial stuff but you know he's an eccentric guy who might like bonfires and she seemed like she was very dramatic so it's not necessarily as out of the norm he definitely okay he did it (laughs) i'm not gonna say definitely but he i'm pretty sure he did it but there's probably not enough to convict him yeah i i mean i agree completely and it's just in recent years that some late breaking news some late breaking evidence has come out in this case wow you remember juanita carberry mm-hmm. june carberry's son daughter uh, june yes that's what a girl child is <laughs> uh june carberry's daughter the 15 year old who uh, went and visited and saw the uh broughtons arguing mm-hmm. now juanita wrote in her memoir which wasn't released of course until years later that sir jock had later confessed the murder to her mm-hmm And then even more recently, in just May 2007, from the Daily Mail, those old supporters of British fascists, this headline, uh, much, I like this better than the other headline, uh, white mischief murder finally solved after 66 years. Mm. It might be a misleading headline, you tell me. This woman, Christina Nichols, came forward with a tape that had been given to her by a man named Dan Trench. And Dan only wanted this tape to come out after his death. Mm-hmm. You see, Dan Trench was friends with the Carberries, and he says that Juanita Carberry told him a much more detailed account of this killing, and he was able to reveal the wheelman who got Jock Broughton from the murder site back home. Oh. And the name he gave was Dr. Ethan Phillip, an ENT doctor who had immigrated to Kenya from Bulgaria. But his practice wasn't doing that hot, so he took some money from his neighbor, Jock Broughton, to pick him up on the road at 3 a.m. It's not clear. Juanita didn't know mm-hmm. whether he knew what he was picking Broughton up from. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, Trench said he, Juanita Carberry had told him, but he didn't feel comfortable with the info coming out until after his death, so he uh, left this tape with a friend. It all seems to fit. Yeah, the, the scenario would go... Broughton climbs into the Earl's back seat while the Earl is smooching his wife on the front step or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's why he gave him the 3 a.m. curfew, right? Ah, yeah. And then uh, once they drove a suitable distance away, he just pops up in the back seat, shoots the guy in the head. Blammo. And waits, uh, walks to wherever he told his wheelman to meet him. It all fits. I mean... I wasn't even thinking there was a wheelman. I was just thinking he, you know, drove there. But uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. And then he probably feels messed up and guilty when he gets back to England, and uh, and he ended everything at that point. Yeah, mm-hmm. it all fits. Um, and as I said, uh, you can read James Fox's White Mischief for a thorough investigation that comes down on basically that scenario. Mm-hmm. And the story is dramatized in the movie with that same name. And, uh, oh, God, Charles Dance. Charles Dance is just great. I could watch him do uh, 
Well, you get to watch him do a lot in this. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, and also, Broughton, Jock Broughton is played by uh, the villain from Lethal Weapon 2, the uh, diplomatic community. jeez. Oh, That's him. And then um, John Hurt comes in. He's the lover, the new lover, Colville, at the oh, end. Oh, okay. Um, Hugh Grant is in it for a couple minutes at the beginning. As just who? like a guy. Oh, Okay. It's um, and I haven't spoiled it for you. The murder. This is a hour forty-seven film. The murder happens at fifty-seven minutes. Oh. And the verdict is read at one eighteen. Oh. And then there's a twist ending. Like it doesn't end how real life ended. So. Oh. So it's uh, it's it's wild. Okay. I, I don't know if I would recommend it to everyone, but I would recommend it to you, my wife. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh. So what do you think? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think Jock did it. Um, I think he was just pushed too far and he couldn't handle it anymore. Uh, he couldn't handle the humiliation. He wasn't as groovy as everyone else. That's not necessarily his fault. Uh, she pulled a, a shiv Roy on him and really turned the tables of their marriage before he had a chance to react. And then he did react and it was bad. Sometimes such a thing is too groovy. Sometimes it's just too groovy. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. No surprise here, we're following up on our news segment last week, Fear of the Final Frontier Ocean Edition. Soon after last week's episode dropped early Thursday morning, news broke that the Titan submersible carrying OceanGate CEO and pilot Stockton Rush, billionaire Shazada Dawood and his 19-year-old son Suleiman, British adventurer and entrepreneur Hamish Harding, and French diver and Titanic expert Paul-Henri Nargiolet had suffered a catastrophic implosion and all five passengers had been killed instantly in the accident. The sub was on a mission to visit the wreckage of the Titanic, which sunk in the icy waters off Newfoundland in or Newfoundland, sorry, in uh, 1912. The, yeah. hmm? the Titanic, I was just going to, sorry to interrupt. It's just a story that has captured our imaginations for so long. I think largely because of the like punishment of mad hubris that it yeah. represents, yeah. Wh which is searingly relevant here. Exactly. The passengers had each paid $250,000 to Ocean Gate Expeditions for the opportunity to dive to the wreck, which was to be undertaken in Russia's custom-made Titan submersible. The cause of this submersible implosion is still under investigation, but Rush and Ocean Gate have been criticized for flagrant flouting of safety and science as more and more information has come out about the company's practices since the Titan originally went missing on Sunday, June 18th. Among concerns pointed out to the CEO before beginning the deep sea tourism dives include inadequate materials for the ship, inadequate piloting of the ship, which was done with an off-brand Logitech PlayStation controller. Not even a Sony. And inadequate testing of the ship, which followed no safety, well, official safety regulations. According to a senior Navy official, the Navy detected an acoustic signature consistent with a deep sea implosion on Sunday in the general area where the vessel was diving to the Titanic and originally lost communication with the mother ship. 
The Navy immediately related the information to on-scene rescuers, but the sound of the implosion was determined to be not definitive, and efforts continued with the hopes that the passengers were still alive. It seems likely that this was an act of known fruitlessness, but it's not hard to understand why people wanted to try desperately anyway. On today, Wednesday, June 28th, what appeared to be chunks of the sub were pulled up onto the Canadian ship Horizon Arctic. NBC News also reported presumed human remains being brought up as well, but considering the force of the deep sea implosion would have basically liquefied anything inside of the sub, it's hard to imagine there was really much of anything, but I guess we'll learn more soon. That's more like, as you said, like searching for the alive people was, like they know it's it's pointless what they're doing, but it's a nice... It's a nice thing to yeah, go and try gesture. to do it anyway. Yeah. More has come out every day about the situation, and I'm sure we'll discuss this terrible accident again in the near future. But it's also worth noting that this puts into sharp relief another tragedy, that of the Messenia migrant boat disaster, in which more than 300 Pakistani refugees drowned in the sinking of an overcrowded fishing trawler off the coast of Greece. At the same time, rescue efforts for the Titan were underway. Why weren't these people helped with the same determination as the Ocean Gate victims? It's certainly something to think about just as much as thinking about what might have pushed five people to make the deadly descent to the most famous shipwreck in history. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I wouldn't jump to, I don't think it's because these people were wealthy or because a Mm -hmm. lot of them were white or anything like that, that that we were, it's just, uh, it was the fascinating story. Yeah. And, and... The idea of being, we all kind of thought they were trapped down there, right? And the idea. Well, that was even the hope. But the idea of being trapped down there and knowing you're going to die was also such a weird echo of the like ty- the tragedy of the Titanic uh, victims. And there's also a fascination to that, you know, a grim, morbid fascination, certainly. But it's almost like Apollo 13 or something, you know, just waiting with bated breath to see how it all turns out. Uh, Unfortunately, thousands of refugees have been killed in similar ways, um, drowning accidents and things like that, just desperately trying to escape their countries just this year. So sadly, it's, it, it, it's less unique in a way. Um, We have, you know, we hear stories about that every day, or at least the state departments do and things like that. Um, they don't stand out as much as this sort of crazy story of hubris and everything like that. It's just sad. It's that Stalin cliche, Carrie. A million deaths is a statistic. Yeah. At least to some. Well, that was cheery. Sorry. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify will be forever grateful we certainly will and special thanks to those already joining us on patreon our beloved top tier patrons are nate curtis sean o'donnell jared chamberlain maria ferrante robin mccabe comfy mike alex nakudis ryan regan christy atchison kate pope Haley, Ozzy sean downs ryan enrique and Derek. we love you all very much See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel. Music is a verb. Kyle has two sons now. Oh, yes. Congratulations, Kyle, to the new Ryan in the family. So don't expect updates on that channel anytime (laughs) soon, but uh, the content he's already got is great. Evergreen. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. (laughs) On the morning of August 1st, 1966... Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.